Welcome to the Diverse Minds Podcast, where we give you the tips, tools, and techniques you need to be a mentally healthy and inclusive leader. Each week, you'll hear about a variety of topics linked to mental health, well-being, and diversity that will enhance both your professional practice and personal well-being. Welcome to the 126th episode of the Diverse Minds Podcast. This month's theme has been mind-body connection and how our physical health supports our mental health and how our mental health supports our physical health. So on today's episode, I'm going to be talking about the book, The Body Keeps the Score by Dr. Bessel van der Kolk. Now, this book has been on my reading list for quite a while, so I thought January would be the perfect time to read this. I also like to ensure my continuing professional development for training, and this is exactly the kind of book to be reading, so I have more knowledge when I'm asked questions during mental health training. Not to forget that this was a book for Olivia Mendoza, who runs the Soul Library, um, her, one of her first book groups, and they read this book and I was quite behind in reading it. But if you want to know more about the Soul Library and Olivia Mendoza's work, it is episode 72, Recovery Through Art. It's a really great episode about addiction recovery through art. But this book is all about the connection between trauma and how it remains in someone's body. And I thought it was a perfect way to round up this month's theme. The Body Keeps the Score is about how a group of therapists and scientists based in Boston in the USA work together with their courageous and memorable patients, how they struggle to integrate recent advances in brain science, attachment research, body awareness into treatments that they felt could really free trauma survivors from the tyranny and the pain of the past. They looked at new paths to recovery and used brain scans and a lot of very robust, rigorous scientific research to look at the brain's natural ability to rewire itself, neuroplasticity, to rebuild step-by-step, the ability to know what you feel or to sense what's in your body, so sensory and somatic experiences to recover from trauma. And it's also a book about offering experiences that directly counteract what can often be helplessness and the invisibility, shame, stigma associated with trauma. And it talks about both adults and children research in both areas. The book is more about adults, but it does draw on children and children's experiences and how trauma can start from an incredibly young age. And that if we can reclaim bodies in some way and have agency, of course, there can be a reclamation over lives. And it draws on more than 30 years at the forefront of clinical research and practice. And Dr. Bessel van der Kolk shows that terror and isolation at the core of trauma literally do reshape both the brain and the body. And I think what distinguishes this book, which is in fact a favourite of one of my associates, Raksha Balsod, is that the author is both a scientific researcher with a long history of measuring effects on trauma and brain function, memory and treatment outcomes, as well as an active therapist. Um, And he talks about this a lot. He uses the case study from his patients, what's been useful when things don't work, what things have been tried again and again. So I think this makes for a really useful analytical, it's readable, although I think if this is not your area of interest, it might be quite a hard read. And I'm going to talk about that a bit more um, to trauma recovery. And I think it's a very in-depth and broad perspective on trauma recovery. So the title really underscores the book's central idea that exposing someone to abuse and violence creates someone who is constantly frightened understandably, what he calls the hyperactive alarm system. And this then means that the body gets stuck in a fight or flight or freeze scenario. So when we talk about anxiety, we talk about that fright, flight or freeze. Of course, trauma is linked to that anxiety reaction. And 
the book does demonstrate how trauma does stop certain bits of your brain working. If I can put it incredibly simply, and I hope there are no neuroscientists listening because I know that doesn't do it justice. Um, what's great about the book is there are photos of brain scans and it shows which bits of the brain light up or are, are focused or out of focus or are being used or not being used when there are different areas of research or thing taking place. And it is this sort of constant sense of danger that creates high levels and continuous secretion of stress hormones, which then really impacts on people's immune systems negatively, impacts negatively and functioning of the body's organs. So it only makes it safe for trauma survivors to tolerate what they're feeling, what they know when they have some kind of intervention. And I think it's really important what this book is quite good at is it doesn't say, right, this is what you need to do and you'll be cured. It does look at the context, the type of trauma, what's happened, the length of trauma, the support. And it focuses on various different things. So trauma processing, it does touch on talking therapies. It does talk about medication. It talks about group therapy, theater, you know, acting interventions, meditation, play, kind of really interesting kind of group dynamic therapy based on families, yoga and something called neurofeedback. As I said, for me, this wasn't a particularly easy read. And if, if you want some clear tips about how to have conversations in the workplace, this probably isn't the best book. However, if you're really interested in the science behind things and in psychiatry, research, psychology, psychopharmacology, and he talks about how drugs have kind of shaped things for better and for worse, super interesting. But I have to say many of the stories and the case studies around sexual abuse and the survivors are incredibly difficult to read and digest. I had to only read about 20 pages of this book a day because it was very, very intense. Particularly, you know, if you are interested in American and East Coast of the USA developments, you know, links to the University of Harvard, it's definitely a book for you. And I think at the beginning, it starts talking about uh, what we now know is post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, uh, or in fact, really, it starts at the development of the diagnosis of PTSD from US Army veterans who fought in Vietnam. I think this is a really pivotal and seminal piece of work. And I say piece of work because it's more than a book. It builds, as I've mentioned, on this 30 years worth of research. And it was published in 2014. I think that trauma can be hidden. I think it's still very much a taboo issue, particularly around for survivors of sexual abuse. And there is a sense that people should be able to get over it. And this book, as I said, does cover trauma from veterans, um, accidents that people have had. So there's a interesting case study about a couple that have been through quite a horrific car accident, touches very briefly on some natural accidents. But for me, the centre of it is around sexual and um, physical abuse in families and also children who have children and young people that have been in the American foster care syndrome. Um, I think it is more geared towards practitioners and people who are working with survivors of trauma, but great to know and great for, for me to be able to answer questions. So I really hope you're enjoying the content of this podcast and want to keep up to date, then why not join my bi-monthly newsletter? When you join my mailing list, you'll receive a copy of my ebook, The Mentally Healthy Leading Manager. And the link is in the show notes, but just in case, it's https colon forward slash forward slash bit dot ly forward slash mhlmebk21. Okay, back to the podcast then. So what did I find really useful about this book? Why am I bigging it up? <laughs> 
Um, firstly, for me, and I have already mentioned this, but just to reiterate again, for those of you who love evidence-based research and like to quantify things and see things, this book is brilliant. So I've talked about the brain scans it shows. It explains very clearly the research they did in an accessible way. And it also has a huge appendix with additional resources. So if you wanted to go and read the papers that the snapshots and summaries are based on, you could absolutely do that. Um, so that I thought was great. And just seeing the bits of the brain that are impacted by trauma was fascinating to me. I think the insights from the past, so he really was at the forefront of um, PTSD work, what we now know as PTSD work, getting a diagnosis. He talks about you know, how psych psychiatric illnesses are, you know, the classification and the difficulty around that and kind of what happened. And I'm going to share a bit with you in a moment. But that I think was very interesting, the past and the present that also talk about, he draws on examples from Austria, from France, from you know famous psychiatrists that you'll be aware of, um, how trauma has been managed and the kind of words and insights. He also draws on a piece of work, a book that was written by Darwin, and it says, you know, you know, his, his, the famous work was all about the, the evolutionary, but actually he'd done quite a lot of work, which we would now identify as trauma. So that was interesting. Again, very from a male Eurocentric perspective, but still interesting. And then going back to the point about the DSM, which is the diagnostic manual that most of the Western world, if not, I think all of the world use to classify psychiatric or mental ill health disorders. Um, and I'm just going to read a bit from the book because I thought this was really useful and to think about, you know, how, how do these classifications come about? So each major diagnosis in the DSM had a work group responsible for suggesting revisions for the new editions. I presented, so this is Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, the results of the field trial to our DSM for PTSD workgroup, and we voted 19 to 2 to create a new trauma diagnosis for victims of interpersonal trauma. Disorders of extreme stress, not otherwise specified, DESNOS, or complex PTSD for short. We then eagerly anticipated the publication of the DSM-4 in May 1994, but much to our surprise, the diagnosis that our workgroup had overwhelmingly approved did not appear in the final product. None of us had been consulted. This was a tragic exclusion. It meant that large numbers of patients could not be accurately diagnosed and that clinicians and researchers would be unable to scientifically develop appropriate treatments for them. You cannot develop a treatment for a condition that does not exist. Not having a diagnosis now confronts therapists with a serious dilemma. How do we treat people who are coping with the fallout of abuse, betrayal and abandonment when we are forced to diagnose them with depression, panic disorder, bipolar illness or borderline personality which do not really address what they were coping with? The consequences of caretaker abuse and neglect are vastly more common and more complex than the impact of hurricanes or motor vehicle accidents. Yet the decision makers who determined the shape of our diagnostic system decided not to recognize this evidence. To this day, after 20 years and four subsequent revisions, the DSM and the entire system based on it fail victims of child abuse and neglect, just as they ignored the plight of veterans before PTSD was introduced back in 1980. So to me, that's incredibly powerful. And it goes to show that yes it's a science in terms of research but classifications they're holy and there are other bits that he, he talks about the dsm um super interesting super useful and just to give us a context around medicine is so important i'm not denying that 
but we have to always think of the full picture, the individual in front of us, the framework around it and the politics at play, particularly in America with private healthcare. So fascinating. And he touches on that more. He touches um, on the fact that, um, again, you know, the DSM, I think there's a subscription, people pay for it and, and how it's used and, and the influences around that, which, you know, in many ways, I think is quite brave. The other part I, again, really resonated with me was when he talks about cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, and this is something that's used very widely. It's the therapy of choice because it's been proven in the NHS to show quite rapid and marked changes for people. And he provides some context around this, which, again, for me was great because I thought, finally, I've got the answer. Um, and it goes into detail and explanation about how CBT should be used for phobias. So I'm going to read a little bit here as well from page 220 from the book. So entitled, the section is about entitled Cognitive Behavioural Therapy. During their training, most psychologists are taught cognitive behavioural therapy. CBT was first developed to treat phobias, such as fear of spiders, airplanes, or hikes, to help patients compare their irrational fears with harmless realities. Patients are gradually desensitised from their irrational fears by bringing to mind what they are most afraid of, using their narratives and images brackets, imaginal exposure, close brackets, or they are placed in actual brackets, but actually safe, close brackets, anxiety provoking situations. This is known as in vivo exposure, or they're exposed to virtual reality, computer simulated scenes. For example, in the case of combat related PTSD fighting in the streets of Fallujah. The idea behind CBT is that when patients are repeatedly exposed to the stimulus without bad things actually happening, they gradually will become less upset. The bad memories will have associated with corrective information of being safe. CBT also tries to help patients deal with their tendency to avoid, as in, I don't want to talk about it. It sounds simple, but as we have seen, reliving trauma activates the brain's alarm system and knocks out critical brain areas necessary for integrating the past, making it likely that the patients will relive rather than resolve the trauma. Prolonged exposure or flooding has been studied more thoroughly than any other PTSD treatment. Patients are asked to focus their attention on the traumatic material and not distract themselves with other thoughts or activities. Research has shown that up to 100 minutes of flooding, in which anxiety-provoking triggers are presented in an intense sustained form, are required before decreases in anxiety are reported. Exposure sometimes helps to deal with fear and anxiety, but it has not been proven to help with guilt or other complex emotions. And it talks more about that. And this for me was brilliant to see written down because I often think that, and again, I'm not a practitioner, but CBT for things like stop and search, racist experiences, isn't always helpful. And there are many techniques that mean that people, you know, talking is put at the center, but talking isn't necessarily the way in which people want to resolve their trauma. And this is what was great. There was evidence around uh, the science backing yoga and movement, theater, using theater for recovery, something called neurofeedback, which looks at the brain's natural electricity and how that can be used for someone to enter relaxed states and help them. And that was one of the most fascinating chapters for me. Um, so really useful. And I'm so glad that that's in there because I do think there are a lot of shortcomings with CBT, I think particularly for global majority diaspora black communities. And if the therapist does not understand the cultural context in which we operate in, then there is very little room for headway. And I think that, that point about trauma versus phobia is very different that actually it was developed for phobias and how helpful is it for trauma was so useful. 
Okay, so what about the things that I think that I might have had some questions about? So elements I think could have been expanded on. You know what I'm going to say, don't you? Cultural practices. <laughs> so it does mention particular things from China and India, in particular Tai Chi, martial arts from Southeast Asia, and how they really help with the body somatic movement again. He does, of course, attribute yoga to India. He talks about having gone to South Africa and seeing people who had experienced incredible trauma, uh, truth and reconciliation commissions, and how the wonderful late Desmond Tutu, when when the people were telling their story of the horrific things that had happened, he would encourage them to sing and be able to build their resilience back up. So that was great. But equally, I know that there are far more examples that could have been useful. So it was very much, as I've mentioned, from a Eurocentric lens. And I know many cultures have many different ways of managing recovery, uh, trauma, like storytelling, particularly, you know, throughout the continent of Africa. But I know particular griots and things in West African tradition connecting with nature and talking about yourself in the context of nature, which is very much part of Aboriginal culture um, and supporting Aboriginal people to be able to take back some of their control and autonomy through that. Um, so I think this was a real missed opportunity and probably because there isn't enough research in this area. Uh, so for me, that that was definitely lacking. Um, I don't think and this could have been because it's too quote unquote low lying. So, and I don't mean that it, it isn't significant because it is hugely significant, but my sense is the kind of trauma that the clinics that he has developed and works in um, are the extreme level of trauma and people can function to a certain extent having experienced bullying or racism. I mean, I would argue maybe not, but I'm, I'm guessing for the sense of this, the kind of work that's done that this was the case. So I would have loved to have seen more trauma research around workplace bullying, around racism, daily microaggressions and racism that people experience. And I'm guessing there is maybe no real tangible research in this area that this research group clinic was carrying out. It is very much the kind of therapist-patient dynamic. Towards the end, when he talks about the theatre and the interactions, does talk more about that connection, that peer support etc. But I do think there is the kind of, I know everything and you're the patient. There's still that sense of the dynamic there. I think he's definitely tried not to do that, but of course it's going to come through because that's a setup that's been there for such a long time. I think, get, you know, getting readers to contemplate more, maybe having some questions at the end of each chapter around what, what could we consider for ourselves, whether we've experienced extreme trauma, low-lying trauma, low-level trauma. Um, and something else I think would be been so useful in this book was the carer's supporter's perspective and how tricky this can be. So if you're a carer or supporter or partner for someone who is a trauma survivor, how you could use some of these techniques, not being a therapist, not being a scientist, not being a medical practitioner um, to help yourself and the other person. Um, again, I know their role isn't to work with carers, it's to work with the actual survivors, although I think there is some interventions there. But again, recovery takes its toll on people supporting the person recovering. And then, of course, because it's written from a US perspective, um, the language is very, very American English. So the constant word molesting, so molested, children are molested, or that, that really grated on me. So in the UK, we would say uh, we would use victim victims or um, children that were harmed by abuse or sexual abuse, victim survivors of sexual abuse. So there were some points around language that didn't really sit that well with me. But of course, that's preference. You know, we're in a different country. So the takeaways from the book is that trauma is, of course, complex. It is a normal part of life. It's a public health issue. And it looks different for different people from emotional responses that look like children flipping out, adults flipping out, if I can use that, to complete shutdown and how we need to engage with that. 
The book covers the top end of the trauma spectrum, but of course, trauma can and does happen in all walks of life. It's not just about swallowing pills and taking the medication. Very rarely is that the answer that can help on the recovery journey, but it is about looking at the wider spectrum of support, how your body connects with the mind, how you can have agency in your body to help heal your mind and live the life that you want to and other options available to people. Identity is a really key part of this and many cultures, most cultures have ways of managing dealing with trauma recovery, which weren't covered sufficiently enough in the book. And it's deeply interesting, fascinating, accessible if you're interested in this topic and want to know more. And the scientific information is very robust. There's a lot of it and there's a lot of references that you can go and draw upon and learn more. So I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast. I thought this was a really good way to round up the month of mind-body connection. And if you've enjoyed the show, please leave me a review on Apple or Spotify podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast from and are able to do this. And we'll see you in the next episode. In February, we are talking about stories, sharing your stories and the wonderful Shari Foos from California and the US joins me to talk about the narrative method and sharing your story. So until next time, take care everyone and hopefully I I will connect with you soon. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to the Diverse Minds podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you access your podcasts from. You can also connect with me on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Tune into next week's episode of the podcast, where I'll bring you more insights on mental health and inclusion. Bye for now. <laughs>